Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. I still have a few more things that I'd like to share as we wind up our thoughts on the messages on the Hall of Faith. I feel like this will be the last message on it, but you know who knows? I thought that Sunday, but I do want to tie in in this last, probably last message on the Hall of Faith. I think we need to get into the 12th chapter also because... You know, the chapter breaks were put there by the translators. If you notice, when we began speaking on the Hall of Faith, we started in the foyer, which I considered that to be Hebrews 10, where you see all of the precursor to coming into the Hall of Faith is about Jesus and not casting away our confidence and understanding that we are not of those that draw back. So we press into the Hall of Faith, understanding that Jesus is pleased with us looking forward. And then we go into all those examples in the Hall of Faith. Well, I would think this message would be the exit plan, uh, the exit plan from the Hall of Faith. Because if you've ever been on an incredible tour, we've been blessed to travel, especially on some history trips that we've taken. And there's been a few times when we've had some really good tour guides on some trips that we've gone on, whether it was Gettysburg or even in Washington, D.C., and they just have you ready to go out. And if it was Gettysburg, you're ready to go out and fight the battle all over again once they have primed you for that. And maybe it might be a place like Washington, D.C., where you feel the weight of history and how significant it has been that our forefathers, our founding fathers, have done such great things. It just fires you up and you're ready to go out and do things yourself. And that's what this is doing here as the Apostle Paul winds up the 11th chapter, and he moves into the 12th chapter. I believe it's the exit plan from the Hall of Faith. If you notice, we sort of concluded on Sunday our remarks there in verse 38, where it speaks of those in the inner sanctum who are giving their life for the cause of Christ, actually dying for the cause of Christ. I believe that's where we see the inner sanctum, and the centerpiece of that inner sanctum of the Hall of Faith is Jesus. It says in verse 38, "...of whom the world was not worthy." Uh, Y'all understand that the sacrifices that all of these that have made that we've looked at in the Hall of Faith and then very pointedly those that have given their lives as martyrs. The Apostle Paul makes sure we understand the world, this wicked world, this world system, this natural world. It was not worthy of those folks of what they did. Don't ever forget that we're not. We're not running on the same track as the world runs on. And as the world would look at many of these things we we talked about on Sunday, their defeats in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of the Lord, the world was not worthy of these people. Uh, I sometimes will say of this person or that person, I will say they are (laughs) otherworldly. And that's where I get that from. You know, we want to be otherworldly. Now, we don't want to be no earthly good. I'm not talking about, you know, walking around six, you know, two feet off the ground and not being any benefit to anyone. These people here, and we should have it as our goal to be otherworldly and that we don't belong here. And so Paul says in verse 39, he says, these all, speaking of those that we've looked at in the hall of faith, these all having obtained a good report through faith, receive not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect or complete. So there was some finishing touch that was yet to come that all of these folks in the Old Testament, especially the ones in the Old Testament. Now, I believe the Apostle Paul is referring to some coming 
persecutions and martyrdoms that would take place as he describes some of these things here. But a lot of these things happened to the apostles themselves. And some of this had already happened in the days that Paul was writing. But he says that they would not be complete. The finishing touch had not been put on faith until Jesus comes and reveals that he is the object of our faith. So you move into chapter 12 where it says, Wherefore, the conclusion is, seeing that we also are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the witnesses from the hall of faith, seeing that we're, we're surrounded. You can just picture yourself walking through that great hall of faith, that museum of faith, and looking at these portraits and just being dazzled by the images that you see. We are compassed by those great cloud of witnesses Notice he says, this is our exit plan. This is what we should do as we leave the hall of faith. This is what the hall of faith should do for us. Seeing that we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Notice how the apostle Paul is preparing us for what comes after the viewing of this great hall of faith and the inner sanctum there where many laid down their lives and were martyred and killed for the name of Jesus and were, were happy to, to do such things. It's a, we're fixing to run a race. He says, let us run with patience. Notice he says, there's a better thing that we have. We have the crowning point on our faith because we know exactly what to associate our faith with. Y'all understand how important this is, especially in the modern terminology that is used where there's so many people that have faith in their faith. You know, I have faith that I did something. I have faith in a decision that I made. I have faith in a standing that I have. I have faith in, you know, what I have done. That's not faith. The faith, the crowning point of faith is, a, is an understanding of Christ being the object of that faith. I have faith in what Jesus did. I have faith in the decision Jesus made. I have faith in the sacrifice that he made. You see, that takes all the emphasis off the center. And that's what we want. If you want to know, you say, well, why do I struggle? Why do I doubt? Maybe analyze what your faith is in. It's not going to be in your persevering. We want to persevere. We want to stand. We want to be strong for the Lord. We want to be encouraged in the Lord. But analyze what your faith is in. Your faith cannot be in your works. It cannot be in what you do or what you say. Our faith must be in the one who is described in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You catch that? He wrote faith in your heart in the new birth and he finished that writing. You see, he's the author and he's the finisher. So this better thing that we have, this exit plan, this, this way that we should go forth charging into our lives and through the various avenues and, and places that we go, what we should go forward understanding, the exit plan is to look to Jesus so that we can lay aside the weight the sin that besets us. All of that language in verse 1 where it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience. All of that language is tied to sports. It's tied to running a marathon. Or it's tied to uh, running in, in some type of Olympic games. That's his, all of the, the Greek games. That's all references to that. The Apostle Paul says, look, 
You can't run the race effectively with a bunch of weights tied to you. Uh, I've still got at the house some little blue, and I don't even know if the Velcro still works, but some little blue Velcro ankle weights that I had back when I was in high school. And we used to put those ankle weights on around our ankles, of course, and run. And man, when you took those things off, it felt like you were flying because they would drag you down. But, but the coaches wanted us to use those things because when you took them off, you felt like you were just as fast as thing that's ever been. You can't run the race that's before you if you're running a natural race. You can't do it with ankle weights on. You can't run as fast as you normally would with weights on. I've joked and told y'all before about the same old pair of running shorts that I've had since 1992. I bought a pair of real silky Sanford shorts that I've still got hanging in my closet. I'm going through some pictures the other day when Sister Tracy and I were on a canoeing trip in Nashville in 1998. And I was standing on top of a rock and I thought, hey, there's those shorts. I could see it, you know. I had those shorts forever. They didn't make any money off of me. Because I have used those shorts for 20 plus years now, almost going on 30 years. But the reason I wear those silky light shorts when I run is because they don't have a lot of weight on them. And you can run faster. I don't as much care about that anymore nowadays because I'm not competing against anybody other than myself to to keep from dying. (laughs) But back when I was competing against other people, I wanted to be as light as I could. So you wear a t-shirt in the summer and you wear a pair of light shorts and some light tennis shoes. That's kind of hard to find light tennis shoes when you wear 12, too. (laughs) So you can't run a race with a bunch of weight on you. And so he says, let's lay aside the weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. The phrase there, easily beset, ties directly to a marathon. Because it means, literally, things that would distract a runner. Things that would keep a runner from uh, running their best or doing their best. And that's what sin does for us when it comes to our spiritual race. It besets us. It easily besets us. We are so uh, distractible, if that's a good word. We are so easily distracted. Uh, One of my children said to me uh, one time, I don't know, it was a year or so ago. They said, Daddy, what do you do at work? Do you watch YouTube all the time? I was like, first of all, you know, I forgive them for saying that, you know. But I do not watch YouTube at work. I don't have time to watch YouTube at work. I don't, have, I don't even have a desire to watch that at work. But when I'm at work, you know, I'm, I'm focused on work. But there, have been a, there has been a time or two when some notification would come. Maybe it was from Facebook or, or it might be an email that had an attachment to it from somebody that I know. And it would link me over to something. And the next thing you know, five or ten minutes has gone by. And I'm like, I ain't got time for this distraction i got to get back on point. i got to get back to, to doing what I've got to do. I've got these deadlines to meet and such. i got bills to pay and so forth. But we are so easily distracted. I'm going to tell you, that is Satan's plan is to distract us. Just like a runner would be distracted. Somebody, the, the, maybe the gun's fixing to fire. Pow! And they're fixing to take off running. Somebody says to the, the runner, hey, come over here. I'm going to show you something before you start running. Boom! The gun goes off and they're over there distracted. They're already behind. The Apostle Paul says, don't let these sins, which are like ankle weights, or like, you can imagine somebody wearing a body vest weight. Uh, they just drag us down and we can't run. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's why I believe it's more along the lines of a marathon. Because you've got to be patient running a marathon. 
You've got to be patient. Now, I know a little bit about running. I've never run a marathon, but I know a little bit about running. I always try to run about 30 minutes every time I run. I just don't feel like I've worked up enough of a, of a, of a sweat if I don't run, if I run anything less than 30 minutes. And I would tell you, sometimes when I've just gotten up and I've still got sleep in my eyes, especially when I go run on a treadmill. I mean, I really hate treadmills because they, they, they tell me the exact time that is left right in front of my face. I don't like that. And I, and I, and I say, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to look at it. And I always look at it. You just can't help yourself. So I love to run outside and I can just look at my watch and see. But you need patience when you're running a race. And again, I'm not racing anybody but just myself. But you need patience because that 30 minutes is going to take 30 minutes to run when I run. And I need patience. I need, you know, the first five minutes is usually the roughest. And then I'm cruising through the middle. And then the last five minutes is rough because I'm almost done. And how far along have I gotten? And, and I personally know when I'm running around on our on McCool Road and some of the local roads, I know where I ought to be about such and such time. So if I get around to the bottom of James Road in 49, I can look and say, well, I was supposed to be about nine minutes. And then sometimes I look and it's like, you know, 10 minutes. You know, I'm way behind. But I want to run my race with patience. Like you're running a marathon. Your, your life is not a sprint. You know, now you may be hoofing it pretty hard and sometimes, but usually it's a marathon that you're running. You know, when you start as a parent and you start to teach and train children, you know, that is a marathon. You know, you're not going to be able to gorge them with everything right away when they're just three or four years old, you know. It takes teaching to do that. It takes teaching for them to understand Scripture. It takes teaching for them to understand how to interact with one another. That's a marathon. You know, church membership is a marathon. You say, well, I've, I've reached the finish line because I've joined the church. That's the starting line. That's just the starting line for the marathon of being faithful to the kingdom of God in, the, in this life race that we're in all the way down to the end. I tell you what, I look at the old saints, the ones that have gone before here, like Brother Rayford, Sister Evelyn, Sister Maud, uh, Brother Clarence, Sister Irma, others that you can remember. That, and I've left out a few, I know. But I think back on them, you know, when we, when we first came here, there was just a handful of people. And I, I think, what, what a testimony to their faithfulness that even through the years when things began to, to kind of drift and wander and, and interest waxed and waned and, and people went away and maybe there were some disputes and things like that, but they stayed. That's a testimony to them running the race with patience. I rejoice in it. You wouldn't be here today if those old saints hadn't done that. <laughs> if they hadn't run their race with patience. As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't know this. But for eight years in the 1960s, nobody met at this church for eight years. The church did not disband. But for an eight-year period, nobody met at Old Springertown Church. I'm kind of ashamed of that. I don't talk about that a whole lot. I wasn't alive. It's not my fault. But I look back and I think, you know, there was a period of time for eight years this church didn't even meet. They didn't disband. And the good old Aunt Irma, Sister Irma Hitt, wrote a letter to Elder Armand Rich up in Birmingham begging him to come down and just start meeting with them again. And he came down and they started meeting again. Praise God for that. Most folks would have just said, well, we ain't met for eight years. No way it'll ever get going again. <laughs> Praise God for that kind of faithfulness. We need, to we need to hear that kind of faithfulness. We need to rejoice in that kind of faithfulness. And by the way, she didn't even live down here. Hence. She was living in Birmingham. <laughs> still worried about this little church down here in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and you're still running the race based on them handing off the baton to you today. You see?
Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I believe somebody was looking unto the author and the finisher of their faith to be able to run that race in such a way. God forbid that there would come a time where the church that you attend would lay dormant and not meeting for some period of time. God forbid that that would ever happen. But if it ever does, you remember to run that that, that race with patience, looking unto Jesus. Now watch this in verse 2. Very, really interesting words that are used here. Looking unto Jesus. The word looking right there, the definition of it is to turn the eyes away from other things and fix them on something new. <laughs> Doesn't that give us the image of walking through the hall of fate, priming ourselves for exiting and the exit plan that we have before us, and now our attention turns away from those portraits and from those people and from those martyrs, and we begin to look to something else, something new, and it is Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, our eyes turn away from the people that we've looked at to the source of the power and the source of the faith that those people were relying on, and it is Jesus Christ. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The word author right there is only used four times in the scripture, and it is an exclusive word, let me tell you. It's not like so-and-so fiction writer, author of this book. No, it is an exclusive word. Two times it is used as the word prince. Another time it is used as the word captain. And here it is used as the word author. You can check that out and search the occurrences on that. Four times. Two times as prince, one time as as captain, and one time as author. And every time, without exception, only ever referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the Greek word is archegos which means chief leader, prince, one who takes the lead and affords the example, a predecessor, and I like this, a pioneer. Let me tell you, Jesus was the pioneer of your faith. He was the one that was the author of your faith. He wrote it like you would write a book. The only reason you've got faith written in your heart is not because of something you have done, but it's because of the author, the pioneer, the one who was the most faithful of all time. He wrote that in you. He's the author of it. Now, interestingly, the next word, if that word was an exclusive word and only had four occurrences, the word author, well, the next word, it says he is the finisher of our, of our faith. It only occurs one time. That's the only place it occurs. And it, it means one who in his own person raised faith to its perfection and set before us the highest example of faithfulness. <laughs> it means to complete the completer or the consummator. It occurs one time. Isn't that appropriate that these terms are only applied to Jesus? (laughs) Not only did he author your faith, not only did he write your faith, but he also finished it. And he is the ultimate example of faithfulness. It says in the book of Philippians that he was obedient unto death. You see, nobody has ever faced what Jesus faced. Maybe you've faced a lot of troubles and trials in your life. And I pray to the good Lord that you, you don't experience too many that's too overwhelming. Everybody faces troubles and trials. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation. But nobody that has ever existed on this planet has ever faced the trouble that Jesus faced. Because nobody else could or would pay for the sins of a host of ruined and wicked people. You see, let me tell you something. Jesus was the ultimate victim. 
He was innocent. He never did anything wrong. He never said anything wrong. He never thought anything wrong. He was the, he could have been the ultimate victim. And he was a victim in terms of being a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. But the, the one who could have been the ultimate victim and could have complained the most was the ultimate victor. You see? He was no victim in the sense of, oh, poor pitiful me. No, he was a victor because it says he ran his race. You see, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. See, there was no joy in the cross. He says the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. You want to know how Jesus felt about the cross? He despised it. And now he's set down at the right hand of the throne of God, the greatest, the greatest champion that has ever lived. Now, if, if you look at the analogy, the comparison there to running a race, you can picture the runners. They're running, and maybe they can see the, the, um, the goal. They can see the goal, and it's not joyful running. Some of you have run. Some of you have exercised, and there's pain associated with that. And there's just no real joy in that pain. And Jesus, who is the ultimate victor, who is the ultimate race runner, the ultimate completer, the ultimate author and finisher of our faith, it says here that he could see the goal and he had joy in the goal but he despised the pain and the shame of what he was going through you know you've heard that old saying no pain no gain <laughs> well that saying is ultimate with Jesus Christ because he had to go through the worst pain that has ever been in order to get to the goal and now he sits as the greatest champion that has ever lived I'll tell you if that's not an incentive and somebody needs to check their grace level <laughs> You know, are you really paying attention to grace in your life? Are you really understanding what the Lord has done for you? We get this pity party mentality of, oh, woe is me. Jesus didn't have that mentality. If the martyrs had a pity party mentality, and if, if the uh, saints of old, the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs, now some of them at different times in their life, like Jacob, they had a pretty bad pity party going on, didn't they? But think about Joseph and these men of God and these women of God. They didn't have a pity party mentality. They had a victory mentality because they had an, something within them that was telling them there's hope and there's victory to come, even though it's rough right now, even though it's bad right now. We have ultimate victory through Jehovah in heaven, Old Testament, through Jesus Christ. We know his name now, you see. He says, for consider him, consider him that hath endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint. In your minds, you've never had to deal with the contradiction like Jesus had to deal with. You know, it puts in perspective the contradictions and things that we have to deal with. We deal with contradictions on a daily basis. You know, somebody says, well, you know, I want to be your friend on this day. And the next day, you know, they're being friends with somebody else. Or, you know, somebody says, well, I'm going to do this for you. And they don't do it. And they do something else the next day. We're constantly dealing with contradictions. If you want to really deal with contradictions, uh, go into law. <laughs> Because you, you've constantly got somebody contradicting a testimony and, and people say, oh, I got you. I figured this. Well, no, there's a contradiction to this. And then there's a contradiction to that. It's multiple contradictions. And I'm not saying that's the only place that there's contradictions. There's contradictions everywhere. But none of us have ever dealt with the contradictions like Jesus dealt with. And it's the contradiction of sinners against himself. His very, the ones who should have been his friends were his enemies. And he had to deal with the contradiction of them against him in order to make them his friends. Now that's some faithfulness right there, isn't it? We all have to deal with 
uh, people not doing things we don't we like, people doing things we don't like. If you're married, you know sometimes your spouse doesn't do. There's just always a contradiction. You know you might rub one another the wrong way, get up on the wrong side of the bed. There's just always these contradictions going on. Is Jesus not the ultimate example to look to for us to get through those contradictions? Oh, I say to the young folks too, and a lot of times the young folks get into uh, rubs with one another because, you know, so-and-so didn't speak to me, or so-and-so didn't act right, or so-and-so didn't do this, or so-and-so's letting me down, or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, or you stole my boyfriend, you stole my girlfriend. All of these contradictions come up. I tell you, we look to Jesus who shows us how to defeat and be the victor over such contradictions. Because he overcame the greatest contradiction that could ever be. And that was you and me against him when he was saving us. If that's not the ultimate example of dealing with contradictions in our life, I don't know what is. If that's not the ultimate example to get a a married couple through the storms of life, I don't know what is. If that's not the greatest example that you could look to if you're trying and striving to be a friend to someone and they're letting you down or maybe you're letting them down, to deal with this in the way that Jesus dealt with it and be the best friend that you could ever possibly be. With a smile on your face, you're not a victim. You're not a victim. You're a victor through what Jesus Christ has done. But we often go around, you know, with... Uh, like the guy in the commercial in the 80s, you know, who put that battery on his shoulders. I dare you to knock that off my shoulder. You know, I dare you to hurt me. I'm going to stick my feelings out there and I dare you to bump into me. Just looking for reasons. Aren't you glad Jesus wasn't that way? They bumped into him left and right. They plucked off his beard. They, did, they pressed the crown of thorns upon his head. Even his own children did that. Even one of those Roman guards who was a centurion there who bruised him and beat him. He was one of his children. You know, as we said on Sunday from that quote, the riffraff of the world were pressing down on him. We have never dealt with such contradictions in our life. Praise God, we never will. Because our Savior, who we look to in this race that we run, has shielded us from such a contradiction. He says, watch this, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. When you've got all these contradictions going on around you and people aren't treating you right and aren't acting right, husband, wife not acting like they should, friend not acting like they should, boss down on me, or whatever your situation may be. He says, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Remember what Jesus had to endure and look to Him. Quit looking at the circumstances. Quit looking at the things around you and look to Him. Look up. And He says in verse 4, He puts this little exclamation point on it. He says, ye have not resisted unto blood. Now, that, the, again, the idea there is an athlete who maybe, I think of football because that was my favorite and still is my favorite, but it could be an, an athlete who's running a race or whatever, and they begin to bleed. They get cut or they get hurt somehow, and they begin to bleed. You know, an athlete that gets knocked down, and then they get back up. They get knocked down. They get back up. They just keep getting back up because they don't care how many times they get knocked down. They're going to get back up. He says, you have not resisted in that way. You have not resisted unto blood. You didn't have to pay for your sins. You didn't have to shed your blood to pay for your sins. But Christ did. See, He said, you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. Christ has resisted unto blood, even losing His blood because He was striving against sin, against your sin and against my sin. (laughs) I tell you, that really puts it in perspective, doesn't it? For the joy that was set before Him For the joy He endured the cross, He despised the shame, He sat down as the greatest greatest champion that ever lived. We are to consider that champion 
who resisted even shedding his blood. He resisted to the point that he had to shed his blood in striving against sin. And we have forgotten, verse 5, the exhortation which says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Why would he shift gears and go into chastening now? <laughs> Think about that. Why would he's talking about, hey, let's run this glorious race. Let's do this glorious thing. And now he's shifting gears. He says, you've forgotten. You've forgotten. <laughs> and I would put it in maintaining the sports theme. I would put it like this. You have forgotten that you've got a coach. <laughs> but more, more than a coach, you've got a father in heaven. You've forgotten that you've got a coach. And, and he is telling you doing what's good for you, having you train and having you run and do the things that you do and do push-ups and sit-ups. And it hurts to do those things. But the goal is to win that race, you see. We go through all, nothing comes easy in life, that's for sure. And, and if you're going to compete in something, nothing comes easy. You have to try. You have to fight. You have to train, you see. That, that, listen, that's the case not just with sports, is it? You say you want to you be this career you want to be that career well i think a lot of times our mentality is especially maybe the younger generation i'm not picking on anybody here but they think well it'd be nice to be that but they don't want to put in the time and the effort to get to be that you know whether you want maybe you want to be a doctor a lawyer a dentist a farmer a, a ditch digger a, you know whatever your goal is you say, well, that'd be really nice to be that person but you've got to have some sweat and blood go into getting to be that person you see it just doesn't come overnight I remember back when I was in college, I thought it was never going to end. I, I hate to say this, but I really hated college. I, I mean, I've always just hated school. I just didn't like it. And I'm not saying, well, I'm going to be like Brother Tim. So, no, you bet, if you are like Brother Tim, you better stay in school. Because <laughs> I did. <laughs> but I hated school. I, I felt like it was in my way. I felt like it was it's causing me to not have as much fun as I needed to have. But I had to dig in and I had to do that because I, I had a goal in mind. I said, I got to be, I got to get this four year degree. And then lo and behold, you know, I got in law school and I'm thinking, yeah, oh my goodness, another three years. What a nightmare. And it was a nightmare, but I survived. You know, I can't say I made the best grades in the world and I can't say I did everything right and passed every test that I took, but I somehow I limped out of that and I became that goal, you see. But it took time, it took seven years to do that. Nothing comes overnight. I'm going to tell you what, if it comes overnight, you better, you better read the label real carefully. You better read the label. The Lord was planning our salvation. It wasn't overnight. The Lord had been planning our salvation before the world was even formed. And he'd drop little bread nuggets here and there and say, my son's coming. You know, the Messiah's coming. He's going to be a prophet like Moses. It's going to be, he's going to bear this characteristic. He's going to, uh, he's going to come be born, be, born of a, uh, be born of a virgin. He's going to come at this particular time. He's going to come from this particular town. The Lord's just excited because he's got the race set before him. And that race went on for, for thousands of years. And then he comes and he's here on the earth. His feet are planted and he's doing what he's doing. And he's running the race full sprint, full on right there. And he runs to Calvary undeterred, undaunted. And he goes there willingly and he pays the price willingly. And he does what he did for us. And we were his enemies. And he wins. It looked like defeat. Did you know, listen to me. Did you know that when Christ hung on the cross... And he submitted himself to all of that stuff. That is the weakest that God ever was. 
because he allowed himself to be in that position, right? He let them do that to him. It was the weakest that God ever was. And is it not almost hilarious that the weakest that God ever was was enough to save us from our sins? The weakness of God was enough to save us from our sins. Can you imagine the full-on power of God? Well, you won't have to imagine it one day because when He comes back and the marathon is over and He speaks and He says, Be gone, earth. (laughs) And the molecules and atoms of this earth break up and the earth just melts. And all of His children are called home to be with Him. And the sprint's over. The marathon's over. You see, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you keep your eyes and your thoughts and your... When I think about stuff like that, I have good days. (laughs) But when I think about what somebody did to me and how... I stuck my feelings out there and they bumped into me when I should have never stuck my feelings out there. And I think about myself all day. I'm in a pretty bad mood. But when I think about Jesus and I think about that hall of faith and I think about the obstacles that the people of God have faced and how they look to the Savior to get through those things, I have a pretty good day. I don't have time to go into it. But if you'll read the rest of the chapter, you'll see how Paul is is the exit plan. Let me tell you where the exit plan leads to. He points them to Jesus. And then in verse 17, 18, 19, and on down towards the end of the chapter, he points them directly to the church of God. He says, look to Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church of God. It says you are to look to Mount Zion, verse 22, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly church of the firstborn, that are, names are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and look at verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, now watch this little phrase, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Who's the first character that we looked at in the Hall of Faith? Besides the mirror of, of you see in yourself and if you believe in creation, the first named character in the Hall of Faith was Abel. And the Lord, Paul says, Jesus' blood speaks of better things than Abel because Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out mercy to His children. And that's where we wind up on the exit plan. We need to be looking to Jesus. We'll have good days when we look to Him and we dwell on the things that He has done for us and we run the race with patience.